0: Family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live! Come on, be human and give, give, give! <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human! Aho!
1: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Ronthe, your host, and we look forward to welcoming some provocative improvisational conversation. Subjects to be covered include high anxiety, results of the latest poll by the American Psychiatric Association. Guess the results. Hey, proven results for chronic pain. Hint not prescription drugs, and it's related to the first topic we're going to discuss about high anxiety. Our featured guest at 8.30 will be Lama Sultram Alioni, an influential Buddhist teacher and author. Her new book, Wisdom Rising, A Journey into the Mandala of the Empowered Feminine. She has had an amazing career, including time spent with Ram Dass and One of the most amazing people I ever met, Allen Ginsberg. Look forward to talking some Buddhist philosophy. We'll have music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, who's bringing in the wonderful jazz singer Joan Henry to perform for us today. Uh, We'll have a musical jukebox, Bach, Rock, and Jazz. And joining me in the improvisational part of the conversation, our co-host, Weekend On Air Warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer. We will have an existential wrap-up with street philosopher Patrick Carlin. And we always leave room for surprises because they tend to find us. So fasten your seatbelts and join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, (laughs) Hal. We're going to go for it again. All right. Here we go, right through the Stargate. (laughs) Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Doug. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Good. I must say, an image struck me on my ride here today to the studio. I come from Kingston to Woodstock. Uh, For those who don't know, Woodstock is a valley. Uh Uh-huh. And we have mountains to the north and mountains to the south. Beautiful Catskill mountain ridges. And coming from Kingston, it's not noticeable unless you kind of really pay attention. But uh, there are a fair amount of elevation changes, uh-huh. and um, there's a there's a point in the drive when coming off Route 28, which is a kind of major highway for up here, onto Route 375, correctly now renamed the von Helm Boulevard. Boulevard, yeah. Uh, there's a point at which. You're starting to drop down in elevation because Woodstock's in a valley. And there's a point where over the trees you see the beautiful mountain peaks of the Blue Mountain Range of the Catskills. Mm -hmm. And today, being a kind of misty morning after a lot of rain yesterday, there was this amazing image that I only got for a couple seconds before I kept going down and then the trees in front of me blocked it of the mountains with just this, this little taste of cloud that mm. was kind of hugging between two peaks. Mm. And it reminded me of one of the great insights uh, I was fortunate to get from a professor. Uh, in college, uh, my good friend and college roommate was an art major, and he convinced me to take a course in Chinese art and philosophy. I was a philosophy major. And uh, this teacher was amazing. He, he was from what was then called, in 1970, Red China. Ah, yes. I remember it well. <laughs> which was about the most mysterious place you could think, because it was under Mao's reign. Yeah. We knew very little about what was actually going on. He had escaped. And he was a brilliant artist and uh, had good sense of, of, of philosophy and, and gave this course in Chinese art. And philosophy, and I'll never forget. He he, he put up a, these paintings, and he pointed out that the the key distinction between Asian art and particularly ancient Asian art and Western art is in Western art you see a lot of portraits. Yeah. And say like the Mona Lisa, brilliant. But the the human being is the center of the image. He said, in his very strong Chinese accent, no see that in Asian, you know. <laughs> By the way, it's the worst imitation of an Asian I've ever heard, and I'm, pr- I'm, I'm not proud of that imitation. Okay, he would say, uh, look, and he would show you an ancient, you know, a painting, and, and if you, you know, we've all seen these beautiful paintings where it's like a mountain scene, just like I saw coming down, uh-huh. you know, uh, Lee Van Helm Boulevard, and then there might be a small hut, and you see a few little human figures in the distance. Now, philosophically, there's a reason for all this, and that is that in more ancient Chinese philosophy, Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, uh, nature is seen as the key background. It's that we are here, you know, we are a small part of nature, whereas in Western art, you know, the ego's a little bigger.
0: Yeah.
1: We like to dominate nature. (laughs) Now, of course, in more modern times, Mao was, <laughs> domin- you know, he, he dominated. Yeah, uh, But, uh, you know. And his he, image it, was everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. if you didn't like it, you were either dead <laughs> or you left. Uh, but in, in, in the ancient philosophy and in the, in the ancient, you couldn't separate the philosophy from the art. And listen, as, you, as listeners know, I have a great, great love of the Renaissance period. Um, and when humanism emerged out of the darkness of the Middle Ages— And human beings started to realize our potential um, to be able to live a life without, uh, coming out from under the thumb of of the church, which demanded that you think a certain way. But the art is mostly portrait. It's Mm -hmm. humans. You don't see that in ancient philosophy. It's a lot less ego. So I was just thinking of that as I looked at that image. Not a human being in it, uh-huh. Just this amazing mountain, these two mountain peaks, and in between, this this little cloud mm. hugging kind of between the two peaks. It was it reminded me of that. Now, that relates to something that um, I, I like being proved wrong. Uh, not at first. <laughs> but ultimately, the great thing about being proved wrong is get to learn something. Yeah. On a scale of zero to 100, that's a pretty big, long scale. Yeah. On a scale of zero to 100, my interest in the royal wedding ah. was minus one. <laughs> oh. And I say that because I assiduously avoided reading or listening to anything about it for two reasons. Uh-huh. One, as listeners know, because I've been on this soapbox before, I hate fancy weddings. Okay. That's fair. I find them a tremendous waste of money. And at best, um, a need to show off that I find distasteful. Well, by any stretch,
0: this was a fancy wedding. Yeah,
1: That's number one. Number two, it's the 21st century. Last time I looked at the calendar. Mm. We don't need monarchies, okay? Uh, ah. We don't need them. Yeah. Can we grow up, please? There aren't many left. Thank goodness. <laughs> Unfortunately, they get replaced by dictators, which is yeah. kind of the same thing. But at any rate, I have no interest in the royals. I have no interest in fancy weddings. So minus I minus one, I, I avoided listening to anything. Well, it's partly my responsibility, if I'm going to come on and do a talk radio, to I look at the paper, the Sunday morning, put on my computer screen, and check out the Sunday Times headlines. Uh-huh. And I couldn't avoid it. There right in the middle is a photo of the wedding. And the window. I said, all right. Because the first thing I saw was uh, Harry's outfit. Uh-huh. And to me, it looked like something out of a Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> <laughs> kind of funereal. The black sort of with the bunting. It's dopey looking. <laughs> anyway, I'm no fashion expert, okay? I'm, hey. not, I'm not presenting myself as a fashionist. I'm just saying it looked like something Groucho would wear in Day at the Races. Yeah. So this is feeding into my prejudice that there is no reason, no reason to spend any time uh, with this royal wedding. I was wrong Mm. because I couldn't help read some of the first lines. And what was pointed out is how unusual this wedding was for a royal wedding. And how it shows in very important ways how slowly but surely uh, human beings are starting to integrate a little better. Yeah. Um, one reason I hate monarchies is because they are a an example of a frame of mind that may end the human race. Hmm. It's a frame of mind that was necessary for our ancient ancestors to survive, but it's turning around and and just eating us, and that's tribalism. Ah, Uh, hey, just look at our look at our culture. Yeah, there's no conversation between Democrats and Republicans anymore. There's no conversation between you know you're either watching. MSNBC and CNN or Fox News or, you know, Breitbart or the New York Times. I mean, there's no middle ground anymore. There's, there's, it's, it's two extreme sides. Yeah. It's tug of war. It's, you know. But not true about the royal wedding because it turns out, despite Prince Harry's ridiculous outfit, <laughs> I didn't know because I was a minus one on the scale of being interested in this wedding that uh-huh. Meghan Markle, I mean, yeah, I get it. Okay, here's a prince, and he's, he's marrying a, a commoner, an actress. Right. Okay. But come on. You know, I figure, okay, great. So she's a successful actress. That's an improvement? Eh? Yeah. And a divorced just, American actress. Not only divorced American, but biracial. Yes. I figure, wait a minute. The queen must be, apople- <laughs> they must have had to drug her to get her to that wedding, right? Yeah. Imagine how
0: it's changed in the past like uh, 30 years. The whole point of royalty
1: is to keep any uh, uh, you know keep that that bloodline going 100 you know pure. Yeah. So here not only is he marrying an American mhm but a biracial divorced American. Right. And a feminist, yeah. and an outspoken feminist. Uh huh. God, I'd love to. I'd. Lo- I'd love to see the, the the Queen's dreams over the past <laughs> like six months. Well,
0: you know, this uh, Harry's not likely to become king. There's a lot of people ahead of him at this point.
1: Yeah, but it still reflects on that, you know. And Charles had to show up for this. And yes. anyway, I have no interest in these people, but now all of a sudden. Harry is much less elitist than his family, um, and the ceremony was heavily influenced by Black African culture. Yes, there were gospel choirs,
0: and and the the the, the, the priest that did the service was a, a Black American yeah. preacher. so
1: those images resonate. Yeah, got the world. So once again, I was wrong. Oh well. Congratulations. I mean, I still think it is (laughs) – I think it's incredibly insane that that in the 21st century we still have any monarchies whatsoever uh, and that we have these ridiculously expensive weddings. But there were some very, very important images that came out of that about integration and about eroding the boundaries of elitism. And tribalism. So anyway, yeah, uh,
0: there, there are some positive things about the British monarchy. It, 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 you know, a government can go collapse. What's that? A, a British government can collapse. Yeah. And yet, it the the, uh, the continuation doesn't doesn't break because the queen is there or the monarchy is okay. there.
1: Are we ants or are we humans? Well, a little bit of both. Okay. Can we we Can we grow up and get rid of the queens, please? <laughs> Just, just, just. I'm not saying I'm wrong. Right. I'll probably be proved wrong again. Yeah. Oh, one last thing. The bride's mother, uh huh, is a descendant of slaves who worked on Southern American plantations.
0: Yeah, that that was something that uh, struck me. That here's a woman who's becoming a princess. Whose ancestors, not so
1: far back, not were so slaves. Far back. Were slaves. All right. So. Interesting. Okay. I meant to get to this last week, but you know what happens. It's improvisational. (laughs) We rarely get to what we say we're going to talk about. We'll get it in eventually. A lot of Americans are more anxious than they were last year, a new poll says. Well, okay. Almost 40% of Americans are more anxious than at this time last year, according to a new poll by the American Psychiatric Association. Hmm. Um, They surveyed 1,000 adults. I found that uh, 39% reported being more anxious. Another 39% said about equally anxious. Only 19% said they were less anxious than last year. Safety, health, and finances were the greatest sources of anxiety. Safety. And here we go to tribalism again. 68% of respondents said their key fear anxiety was based on keeping myself or my family safe. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. See, this is and this is all we've talked about this before. This is all about globalism, which is a force that ain't going to stop. No. No one's going to stop it. We have a president trying to. Yes. And he's not ineffective. But the fact is the world is getting more and more connected, and that is a good thing in the big picture, but, boy, it's wreaking havoc in the small picture because um, this was a thought experiment uh, I did. I don't know if I mentioned this last week or not. We are mammals. Mm -hmm. Now, we were given these brains that have a cerebral cortex, which gives us the ability to see past ourselves, which is not true of animals. Right. Uh, We don't use them as often as we might, but, of course, our educational system doesn't encourage us to. Uh, But as a thought experiment, okay, what would happen if you took 500 elephants and put them, say, in a one acre fenced in area, Mm. or 500 tigers and did the same thing, or 500 chimpanzees and did the same thing, you would have mass chaos and violence. Because mammals are, we are territorial Mm -hmm. genetically, and we need our boundaries. Or we don't feel safe. right? And this is based on the fact that to survive, that's what ancient animals, including Homo sapiens, had to do to survive. Right. We were given these brains to help us get past that. And realize that when we cooperate, we everyone does better than when we are at war. Yes. Uh, we haven't quite learned that yet. And so... The anxiety is about the fact that every time this, this magnificent tool, this, this worldwide web where we have access to the world's greatest knowledge and wisdom at our fingertips mm-hmm. is a two-edged sword. The positives are pretty obvious, but the negatives are also. The more we're connected, the more fearful we get Until, unless and until we get past this tribalism psychology that's, that's in, encoded in our genes, in that study, does it mention anything specific
0: that people are feeling unsafe about? What is what is it the safety aspect? What are we what are we fearing? What are we what are we afraid of in terms of what we've always
1: been afraid of? The other that safety, the other, yeah, the other tribe. Oh, if they're going to take what I have, if they come on my territory, they're going to kill me. Um, so, if I see anyone come onto my territory, I got to kill them. Hey. it's in our genes. Yeah. Even as anxiety spiked, however, few respondents said they had sought out mental health care. Hmm. Despite the fact that 86% strongly or somewhat agree that mental health has an impact on physical health and half agree the stigma associated with mental illness has decreased. Only 28% had seen a mental health professional of any kind. Wow. So uh, yeah, we kind of like our anxiety, let's be honest. We like it. We like it. Yeah feels good to be angry. Yeah. And it feels good to be able to say, okay, it's not my, pr- this isn't my fault. It's that person's fault. And to feel superior
0: to someone else.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah. Unfortunately, one of the main reasons religion still has such a strong grip on us. hmm The spike in anxiety is perhaps unsurprising, given research that has found significant numbers of Americans also consider themselves stressed, of Americans said the future of the nation was a significant source of stress. And the United States is the lowest point they can remember. This gets into another welcome to history. Empires in decline. Mm. If you want some really perverse stories about human behavior, just look at empires as they're declining. Now, if we, again, use the cerebral cortex part of our brains, an empire decline doesn't mean that we don't have enough. Okay, Great Britain, England was the empire. It declined, yeah. okay? Still got a lot of people living very comfortably in yep. England. Yeah, France was once the empire. It went into decline. A lot of French are living quite well. Uh-huh. Same with Spain, Holland, yeah. right? China. All have been empires. The fact that you're an empire in decline doesn't mean you're going away. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're being taken over by another empire, right? Necessarily, what it means is you have to share. Oh, you don't. You don't have your way all the time. No, we're not good at that. I'm not used to that. Well, Americans aren't American. At least, at least I always get my mind. way. That's well. That's true. You're an exception. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. So there's it. you know you have the anxiety. It's not hard to find. Yeah. Um, I pointed this out. This it's not talked about. In 2016, for the first time, more than 51% of Americans born are non-white. Yeah. A lot of white people aren't happy about that. Scares a lot of people. Get used to it. Yeah. And by the way, since now we have a prince of the royal British family marrying a descendant of African-American slaves... It's interesting that in the state of Georgia, in the Deep South, which had slaves not that long ago, Mm -hmm. an African-American woman is running for the Democratic nomination for governor. She's the favorite. And she is saying that if she gets the nomination, she will not try to unify She will not try to convince Republicans to vote for her. She will not try to. She's going to basically use the playbook of let's get progressives out. Let's get women out to vote. And we'll win that way. We're not going to convert conservatives and Republicans to vote for a progressive African-American woman. So we're not going to try. We're just going to try and get more people. Yeah. On the other side. And so that's it, that's going to be interesting to watch. Well, that is
0: interesting. That's interesting because it's sort of like giving up in a way, giving up on any kind of compromise or working together. That's one way of
1: looking at it. I think an equally appropriate way of looking at it is it's the only practical way to win an election right now. Mm. Yeah, well... I think you're right. Barack Obama really put a lot of energy into trying to work with Republicans. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans just basically shut him out every time. Yeah. So if it ain't working, maybe it's the most, I agree with you in the big picture, it's sad. But now we're going to get to in the second half, about how we deal with chronic pain, it's called cognitive psychology. And what I am more into, depth psychology, which is really going deep into our unconscious, our dreams, our intuitions, our fears, and facing all that good stuff. But most people are never going to do that. It's just the way it is. Right. But cognitive psychology's attraction is that it can work more quickly. It's more practical and pragmatic. And I would put this uh, th- this African American woman's strategy for winning the governorship of Georgia, and she's got a chance Mm -hmm. to become the first African-American woman governor of a southern state, um, that the pragmatic approach is to do it exactly what she's doing. Um, Don't try to make nice with people who have no intention of having a conversation with you that's realistic at all. I I was just reading about the uh, senator
0: from... Hawaii, a woman, I can't remember her name. She is actually was born in Japan, so she's the first Japanese-American, and she's a Buddhist. She's the first Buddhist senator, uh, and uh, uh, she is very uh, outspoken uh, against the Trump uh, uh, agenda, and it was very interesting just to, because she, too, was not, Trying to appeal to the, 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 the right mm-hmm. at all, just the left, and, and getting that through.
1: That seems to be where we are right it's now. Very interesting. At any rate, um, that's our beginning. Uh, when we come back, we're going to. An article, a friend of mine who, who uh, sent this to me, really good article um, from a website, uh, Vox.com their science and health uh, section. A hundred million Americans have chronic pain and very few use one of the best tools to treat it. We're going to talk about that tool because it's available to all of us. When we come back. all right the sun is laughing in my face shining in its light on oh, my mistake you could be my adam beer summertime i'll feed you watermelon off the vine i know it's
0: wrong but that's all right
1: Improvisational conversation. Talking about an article a friend of mine, Ken, sent me. A hundred million Americans have chronic pain. Very well, few use one of the best tools to treat it. A hundred million. Yeah. Chronic. Huge. Pain. That means consistent. Wow. If I had to reduce what this article is talking about and others uh, talk about, just it can be. I think it can be reduced to a six-word phrase. I've not been able to trace. Not that it's that important who originally said it. A number of people have taken credit for this six-word phrase. Uh It's uh, And in a way, it speaks to one of the Buddha's noble truths, which we'll get to with our 830 guest. And that phrase is, pain is inevitable. Uh Suffering is optional. And the point of it is that to be alive, we're gonna be experiencing pain right. under the best of circumstances. But it is our minds that get attached to that pain, that fear the pain, that project the future about that pain, that makes it consistent. And that many people have had really strong levels of success reducing their chronic pain by using various techniques. You can call it meditation, call it contemplation, more practical terms, it's called cognitive psychology. Uh-huh. It's basically learning how to use our brains to reframe the experience of being in pain. Hmm. To think about it differently. Okay. Now it takes practice because when we're in pain, we're not usually thinking very effectively. Yeah. We're bitching and moaning. <laughs> which feels good too. It helps short-lived yes but it actually that bitching and moaning moaning increases the chances that the pain will continue uh-huh. far beyond it where it needs to so let's again stories are important from the article from vox.com when pain settled into Blair Golson's hands it didn't let go which started off as a light throbbing in one wrist 10 years ago engulfed the other the discomfort then spread, producing a pain much like slapping your hands against a concrete wall, he says. Oy. He was constantly stretching his hands, shaking them, looking for hot or cold surfaces to lay them on for relief. Wow. Worse was the sense of catastrophe that accompanied the pain. Working in tech-related startups, he depended on his hands. To type, every time the pain got bad, I would think some variation of, I'm never going to be able to use a computer again. I'm not going to be able to hold down a job. I'm not going to be able to earn a living. I'm going to be in pain the rest of my life. Take a guess what that does to the pain. It increases the pain. Yeah, yeah. No matter how many ibuprofen or opioids you take. mm. Like many patients, Golson never got a concrete diagnosis. For a decade, he went from doctor to doctor trying all the standard treatments. Opioids, hand splints, cortisone injections, um, epidural injections, exercise, even elective surgery. His pain was no longer caused by anything physically wrong with him, but it wasn't imagined either. Huh. It was real pain. Pain can be real pain, but can be caused by brain circuits. We have to get over this concept that either the pain is real or it's all in my head and I'm making it up. Right. Now, I've talked about the great work of Dr. John Sarno, who succeeded in reducing thousands of people's chronic pain, primarily back pain. Uh huh. The medical community ignored him. Worse, they pushed him away. Why? Because they're married to the drug industry. And if you follow Dr. John Sarno's prescription, you're most likely not going to need prescription drugs and you're not going to need surgery. And, but it's not psychological pain. It's real pain. No, it is psychological pain and ah, it's real pain. Okay. Here's the distinction. It's not psychosomatic pain. Now, there is psychosomatic pain where you're literally it's imagined. Right. What Sarno showed, because Sarno was a medical doctor, he was a scientist, he just realized his surgeries weren't working for the vast majority of his patients. The pain is real. It can be identified in MRIs. huh? But its cause comes from the brain. Ah. It's psychological. Not all pain. Right. Trust me. If you take your hand (laughs) and you smash it against a concrete wall, it's going to produce pain. It hurts. It's not psychological. That was physical. Right. We're talking about when it becomes chronic. Let's continue. After weaning himself over Vicodin, not so easy to do, Mm. and feeling like he had exhausted every medical option, Golson turned to a book. That described how pain could be purely psychological in origin. Doesn't mean it's not real. Right. That ultimately took a pain psychologist, a therapist who specializes in pain, not a physician to treat the true source, his fearful thoughts. Huh. Realizing... That psychological therapy could help is one of the most profoundly surprising experiences of my life. No doctor he ever saw even hinted that his pain might be psychogenic, meaning the pain that's psychological in origin. Wow. Look, here's the let's let's face facts. The majority of medical doctors are are either purposely in the pockets of the drug companies, because the easy way for doctors to make money, or in many cases, doctors really want to help. Uh-huh. But they've been they're in a system where the only way they can avoid prescribing drugs is to go back and restudy almost everything they learned about medicine in medical school. Most doctors aren't going to do it. Uh, no. But you know what? It's our job. But I don't think it's difficult
0: for people even to admit that their pain is psychological and not. Sure, something that because we'd rather be able to take a
1: pill and have it go away. Exactly, and we don't want to admit that we're causing our own pain. Correct. Now, a lot of people are going to say, "Oh, wait a minute!" So you're saying to me I have to like spend ten years uh, discussing, uh, you know, my traumatic childhood? No. No. Um, cognitive psychology have methods that can work relatively quickly. Now, it may not be, you know, two weeks. Uh-huh. But here's a guy who spent eight years bouncing around from doctor to doctor and getting uh, addicted to, uh, to opioids. No, it's not about uh, unraveling every trauma we ever had. It's right. about learning how to use our brains to first identify how we, the, how, we, how we cause the pain to continue and then basically change the way we think. Doctors have long known that pain can exist in the absence of any physical harm. There's a famous case study um, that describes a construction worker came to the emergency room with a six-inch nail in his boot. I hate when that happens. (laughs) It was so painful, the report says, the patient had to be sedated with powerful opioids. When the shoe was removed, it turned out the nail had passed clean between the toes. There was no physical injury. Oh, my God. Now, this is not true in all cases. Once again, you're playing baseball, you get hit in the head with a baseball, that wasn't psychological, it right. was physical. We're talking about the continued pain, okay, when, when it doesn't go away after a time. Likewise, doctors have known that pain can be suppressed without any medical intervention. We all know about placebos. Fake surgeries, fake surgeries, will often produce the same pain-relieving effects as real surgeries. Huh. Pain is fascinating because it sits at the intersection of biology and psychology and reveals how the two are intertwined. Pain can be real pain, but caused by brain circuits.
0: And that's why sometimes placebos work. Mm-hmm. You think it's a medication that's going to cure you, but it's really just right. a benign pill.
1: Chronic pain may start off as an acute injury and never go away. It could also be the result of nerve problems or degenerative disease like arthritis. So what Sarno pointed out was, look, if you have horrible chronic back pain, the first thing he would insist on is you get an MRI. You might have cancer. Right. You you, you know, that could be remo- removed. Um But what he realized was, and I'm going to state it again because most doctors will disagree with this, and all I can say is prove it. Sarno realized after after years of seeing that his surgeries were not getting people better and in some cases making people worse, went back and researched and said, you cannot find one legitimate medical study That proves that a herniated disc is causing your back pain. Wow. And yet, you go to most back surgeons, oh, you have an MRI, you have a herniated disc, we got to do surgery. Sarno said there's not one legitimate medical uh, proof that it's the herniated disc that's causing the pain. Huh. Wow. So what Sarno would do is, and I've used his, I don't have chronic back pain, but I've had three back spasms in the last 15 years. Uh-huh. First one, ambulance. Uh, I was on the golf course. I couldn't move. Wow. I couldn't move without excruciating pain. Ambulance, emergency room. four hours. They kept giving me power, more powerful, more powerful drugs. It took about six hours before I could, I could get off the table. Huh? The, the second uh, Now, the last time it happened <clears throat> I did the Sarno thing. It doesn't always work, but it worked that time. Within five minutes, spasm gone. Wow. Okay. The Sarno method is, and it's related to this article, because he really was he didn't call it that, but it was really cognitive psychology. Sarno's point is, S-A-R-N-O, um, that what happens most of the time is our brains. Realize we don't want to look at really uncomfortable things about our anxieties and our anger.
0: Okay? Right.
1: So what the brain does is it, per, it it stops sending a sufficient amount of blood and oxygen to a particular area to cause pain to distract us from looking at what's really going on. Uh-huh. So his method was. Um, you talk to your brain. His method was and I'm I'm not saying it's worked for me every time but it works the majority of the time that I'm feeling pain. Huh? You first have to acknowledge that you have that we have unconscious rage and unconscious anger. Right. Cuz we do. Absolutely. We're mammals. And by the way, it's true for Buddhist meditators as much as for construction workers. Okay? <laughs> We have unconscious rage. It's in our genetic code. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we do is we acknowledge it. We don't have to identify it. We don't have to say, oh, it's because of this." No, we just acknowledge that we have it. Okay. And then we say to our brain, I know it sounds too simple. It worked for thousands of people that went to Sarno, went to his talks, and etc. Then you do it, say to your brain, let's say it's back pain. Or in this case is wrist pain. Right. So I recently went through some mm-hmm. wrist pain. You you instruct your brain, you instruct it to deliver adequate blood supply and oxygen to the wrist. Now do it. Pain consists, you say you, you instruct it again. Mm-hmm. Pain persists, you instruct it again. And in most cases the pain will decrease or go away. Wow. Now it doesn't work all the time. That's why Sometimes surgery is required. Uh Um, Sometimes a prescription drug is the right move. In my case, my last incident—I've been fortunate in my life. Despite being, despite being a professional athlete, I've never had a lot of serious injuries. But about two weeks ago, I started. I developed uh, uh, a pain, kind of not constant, but would flash through my left wrist, and. I did my Sarno thing, and it did not work. So I went to my hands-on healer, who's an acupuncturist chiropractor and hands-on healer. She took one look at me and said, oh, my God, look at that. Your left, The left muscle above your left elbow is in spasm. I said, yeah, but the pain's in my wrist. She says, yeah, I know, but spasm is here. So she did her, her hand work on it, massaged it. She needled it with acupuncture, and a day later, it was gone. Wow. So sometimes we just need... That or right, we, you know. But most of the time, it's psychological in origin.
0: Well, I had years and years of going to doctors uh, with stomach problems, mm-hmm. and uh, I went to all the doctors. I had prescriptions. I had things put down my throat and pictures taken, and uh, nothing, nothing worked. It just continued and continued for years. And then um, I changed jobs, and and got rid of all the stress and anxiety, and the stomach pains went away. And I was like, oh, that was stress that was causing, that was my mind causing that,
1: and And, it's gone. And here's where prescription drugs are nefarious. Because a practical response to that would be, oh, if the cause of your stomach pain was anxiety, there are medications that can reduce anxiety. Right. But here's how the body works. So you take that prescription drug, and sure enough, it relieves the anxiety, let's say, Mm -hmm. of your stomach. Guaranteed, because you haven't addressed the underlying psychological issue, the pain will show up somewhere else. Right. And now you're back on the treadmill again. (laughs) Back in the pinball machine of going from doctor to doctor to doctor. The stomach pain becomes a bad left shoulder. Not
0: a single doctor ever Gave any consideration that it was anything other than physical,
1: and that's true of the vast majority of doctors today.
0: Yeah, they all look for the cause. So I'm tired. I'm st- I'm I'm tired of cause.
1: blaming doctors for this. We have enough information at our disposal as humans, as people, to say, to realize this stuff and t- and take it the responsibility on our own. Yeah. the doctor won't doesn't help it. Find another doctor who will.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, to continue with this article from Vox.com, physical problems in the body don't always create pain in our minds for reasons scientists don't quite understand. Many people with herniated discs in their spine, which most doctors will tell you is the explanation for lower back pain, often have no pain at all. Uh
0: huh. They don't even know they have a herniated disc. That's right. Never do, never find out.
1: And there was a study done years ago where they took 100 people, they paid them, and the, uh, to be part of the study, you can never have had chronic back pain and they did MRIs and they found that a fairly large percentage of them had herniated discs. Wow. But think about the person who now they've got terrible back pain. They go to the doctor, they have the MRI. He goes, Oh, you have a herniated disc. What's going to happen to your brain? Oh my oh. God, I have a herniated disc. <laughs> I'm in pain. You've just screwed up your, your brain circuits. Right. Now, again, I want to be clear. Sarno said the first thing you do if you have really bad pain is have that MRI. Make sure you don't have something physical going on, not herniated disc, but like you could have a tumor. Right. Or who knows what. So, you know, yeah, you get, make sure you don't have that. But this idea that herniated disc cause back pain has never been shown. Wow. About let's see a About eighty-five percent of people with lower back pain have nothing diagnosably wrong with them. Wow, it's psychological. Yeah, that's incredible.
0: Um, <clears throat> and yet, back pain is the leading cause of uh, missing
1: work in America. It's costing corporations billions of dollars a year. Back pain, pain, I chronic know. pain. Yeah, wrist pain. Doesn't my back and, chronic and, pain? And, and, and the opioid. Uh, Thing that's going on is the same thing. You couldn't make this stuff up. If you were looking for a way to screw up a culture, <laughs> you couldn't do it better than we're doing it. I know. Research has shown that catastrophi- catastrophizing is associated with worse pain outcomes. Um, neuroimaging studies suggest that if you engage in turning your thoughts towards catastrophe it amplifies pain you're literally pouring gasoline on the fire Hmm. but as chronic pain as a chronic pain patient who bounces from specialist to specialist Mm -hmm. it's hard not to catastrophize yeah how could you not well it gets worse and worse because you don't have an answer to your to to the reason and and they don't seem to find an answer Uh, Back to the guy with the chronic wrist injury who finally figured out, finally was able to figure out it was psychological. He received a therapy called pain reprocessing therapy, which is currently being tested with a clinical trial. It's psychological therapy. It uses a technique called somatic tracking, where patients take time to notice the feelings and sensations going on in their body while assessing those sensations and determining whether they should fear them or not. This is basic Buddhist meditation. I mean, look, can we, it's been around for thousands of years. Uh huh. But again, I used to stand on my stupid soapbox and blame doctors for all this, and they deserve to be blamed because doctors take an oath, first do no harm, and they're harming people every day. But its I'm tired of blaming the doctors. We have enough information to deal with this stuff these articles all over the place and, and don't we teach the doctors that this is how it's done of course so it's not and the doctors their fault <clears throat> i understand they take an oath if they don't play the game the way the pharmaceuticals and the ama says it is it's hard for them to make a living yeah and they got kids they want to send to college
0: and they've got college debt
1: so <laughs> it's that's our job topic. now it's our job now yeah Vox.com, 100 million Americans have chronic pain. Very few use one of the best tools to treat it. Thank you, Ken, for sending that to me. Yeah. We just somehow <laughs> talked our way through another hour. It just goes by. That was great information, Doug. Let's hope so.
0: Oh, I, I, I use everything you said. I use it all the time. Do you? Really? Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Well, no wonder you play a good saxophone.
0: <laughs> That's it the helps. Sultan of
1: Sonic Soul. <laughs> yeah. Is Joan in here? Is Joan coming Oh, yes, in? absolutely. Ooh, we're going oh, to get some good. good jazz in our uh-huh. second hour. And we're also our featured guest. I hope I'm pronounced. I I, I I was, um, I should have followed through. The publicist who I like, who suggested I have uh, this llama on, I forgot to ask her how to pr- correctly pronounce her name. She'll Say it again? Sultrum Elione. Sultrum El-Leon. By the way, here's the World Wide Web. I asked <laughs> I asked Ron, could you Google how to pronounce Sultrum El-Leon, And it does it. Sultrum Elion. Sultrum El-Leon. All the information we need is at a finger fingertip away. Hopefully. But we'd rather bounce around from specialist to specialist. <laughs> hey. All right. During the break, I'm gonna pop an opioid. We'll be right back.
0: <laughs>